Hello and welcome to the Disclosure Podcast. I am your host, Ed. Thank you so much for tuning in today and I hope that you find this episode insightful. If you are new to the podcast, I have a catalogue of previous episodes and interviews discussing a broad range of different related topics surrounding veganism, morality, ethics, communication, and the environment, as well as discussing current events. If you want more episodes of the podcast, or if you'd just like to become a supporter of the work that I do, then you can sign up to my Patreon to get an exclusive patron-only Q&A episode every single month where I go through your questions. And finally, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, then it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so much again for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Disclosure Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope that you're all safe, and I hope that you're all doing well, and I hope that you've all been enjoying life since I last uploaded a podcast. In today's episode, I thought that we could really touch on some of the themes of one of my recent uploads, which was my vegan journey. The video was kind of like a eight minute or so roundup of some of the key moments that I've identified in my past that kind of brought me to veganism. Because one thing that I think is really interesting is how when we talk about going vegan, we think, oh, well, yeah, I had this conversation with a friend or I saw this documentary and that's what made me vegan. But I think what's really interesting is, at least for me, I could see or I could remember these very important moments of my life, moments where preconceptions were challenged. In hindsight, I could see myself making progression towards veganism. Of course, at the time when these moments were taking place, I wasn't aware of that at all. I never thought, oh, this is going to one day lead me to veganism. But looking back now, I can see all these moments that have accumulated in me being vegan. And I think that's really fascinating and really interesting. And I think it for me at least, offers a wider sense of perspective in relation to understanding how and why people make those changes and and what incentivizes people to learn more about these issues and ultimately make the change to veganism in their own life as well. Because of course, we have lots of conversations, we share documentaries, studies, pieces of literature in the hope that that will encourage someone to go vegan. And we may feel disappointed or are upset if someone watches a documentary and then doesn't change or someone joins us for a walk in the park and we have a great conversation but they don't change that can sometimes feel disappointing but actually I think when we understand that for most of us at least there have been these important moments that have as a whole ultimately brought us to veganism and so when we share documentaries have conversations engage in the really productive dialogue in whatever format or platform that may be, when we do these things, it can add to that accumulative effect of hopefully one day encouraging someone to make that change themselves. And so actually, I think it's a great source of of hope to look and reflect on our own behaviors. And ultimately, I think when I reflect on some of my previous behaviors, it makes me realize how many of the things that are said to me, many of the arguments that people use against veganism to me, many of the mindsets that people have are mindsets and excuses and behaviors that I too used to engage in or used to use. And so for me, it gives me a sense of perspective to understand that actually, well, I was one of these people and in many respects, I was potentially even more resistant to the idea of veganism than many of the people I speak to. Some of the 
attitudes I suppose I had, some of the things that I did in terms of like animal products I consumed and thoughts around animals and animal products that I had are probably <laughs> further away from veganism than some of the people some of the non-vegans that I have conversations with now about veganism. So it gives me a sense of perspective and hope to go, actually, no, I used to say that. I used to think that that was me at one point. So I thought what we could do in today's podcast is go through my journey, but in more detail than I did in the video. And there's obviously other moments and other things that happened that I remember or things that I look back on now and, and think of as being poignant, but weren't included in the video. So I thought we'd do that in today's podcast. So let's get into it. So I've been vegan now six years. 2015 is when I made the change. I don't know if, if you guys who are vegan, who are listening, I don't know if maybe you feel the same way that I do, but I had these memories, of course, of the person I was before as vegan, obviously, because that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. But it's strange to think of me being that person, you know, I, I can see these memories and I can visualize these experiences. And of course, I remember, you know, very important aspects of these experiences. It doesn't really feel like it was me living those experiences. It's almost like I'm remembering a different person's life in that way, you know, because for me, these past six years have been so different to what I would have possibly thought that they would be. Even when I made the change to veganism, I didn't expect to be doing what I'm doing now. I didn't expect to have done some of the things that I've done. It's really interesting when we go vegan to think of the person that we used to be and it's really interesting to try and sometimes rationalize those behaviors and actions because they can seem so distant to the person that we are now. I mean, it's not just in veganism, of course. Life is about progression. It's about learning. It's about reflecting. It's about encouraging positive change and progression. And, and the person that I used to be, I look back on not just from a vegan perspective, but just from a human perspective. And I think, wow, you know, you don't realize when you're younger just how, you know, how naive you can be, how little you know, but also sometimes how much you think you know at the time, but really don't. It's so interesting to have those moments of reflection and think, wow, you know, I just find it so fascinating to think about how much we change and how great that is, of course, how wonderful it is to grow older and to learn and to have that extra clarity in a way compared to when we're much younger. And hopefully, you know, I'm obviously, I still like to think that I'm young now. So hopefully when I'm older, I feel the same way. You know, I think, wow, you know, I feel like I've learned so much more. So these six years since I first went vegan have definitely been really eye-opening for me in many ways. I think on the one hand, it's been challenging to become aware of some of the things that I've become aware of. You know, as vegans, we become aware of many things that we didn't know about before. Just what happens to animals, of course. I think an awareness of how difficult change can be. And I mean that not from an individualistic perspective, but the frustration of realizing that there are so many issues in the world that need solving. And yeah, it can be very hard to implement on a societally wide basis, the changes that needed or need to be implemented. We see this, of course, with climate change and with social justice issues in, in general. We can acknowledge what the problem is, and we know, for the most part, what many of the problems are caused by, what the catalysts are and what the mechanisms are that are causing these problems. Yet to implement changes is really difficult because it's met with so much resistance and there are all these cognitive biases and these psychological and social aspects and things that make those changes really hard to implement on a wider basis, and that's really challenging. And so I feel, it's not that I necessarily feel disappointed, although I do feel very disappointed in what we do as a species. I feel immensely disappointed by the things that we do, things that we allow, things that we are personally and, and societally involved in. But I think it's given me a broader awareness of 
those extra challenges, those things that can make that progression hard. And hopefully we can get through those, those challenges because really when you boil it down and you simplify, you know, what I'm referring to here, it really should just be, this is the problem, let's change it. But then it just never ends up as easy as that, does it? So we work towards making it simpler and easier and, and more accessible, uh, veganism that is. And hopefully that's working. I feel that it is definitely in those six years. I mean, actually, if I reflect on the change I've seen within veganism in the past six years, I mean, it's kind of night and day. It really is. I remember when I first went vegan, obviously six years ago, even in, in the UK where veganism has always been or at least in recent years, has been much better than in many parts of the world, of course. Even six years ago here, it was really not like it is now. I'd have to go to health food stores to get some frozen vegan chicken nuggets. <laughs> they were like the most amazing thing ever, and I couldn't believe it. I tried a brand of vegan cheese and was like, oh my God, this is disgusting. <laughs> How am I ever going to be vegan? But now there's so many great vegan cheeses, of course. So it is interesting to see that progression. And one thing that I used to always really enjoy eating when I was growing up were chicken Kievs. It's such a strange food to really like, but I always used to really like chicken Kievs, but it's basically like chicken and then it's there's like a garlic stuffing. Sometimes there's like a cheese stuffing inside, but it's breaded so it cooks. And I used to love that. I thought it was the most amazing thing. So when I went vegan, I kind of had accepted that I would never eat a chicken Kiev again. I was like, well, I do like them, but I accept that a chicken shouldn't die for me to eat a chicken Kiev. So it's absolutely fine for me to give chicken Kievs up. I'll probably never have one again, right? That was kind of my mindset. Like, I mean, I guess that's the mindset that we all have as vegans, isn't it? That, of course, there are so many things that we don't necessarily have vegan substitutes for yet, although that's changing all the time. But the important thing is when we make that change, we recognize that it doesn't really matter. I mean, if I never did eat a, a vegan chicken Kiev in my life, that would be absolutely fine. Because of course, the reason for making the change isn't, oh, well, I can still eat the vegan version. The reason for making the change is, well, it doesn't really matter if there's a vegan version or not, because what matters is someone shouldn't die for me to consume that product. Someone shouldn't be exploited for me to consume that product. And of course, no one should die for me to eat a chicken Kiev. So when I made that change, that was the realization I had and was more than happy with. But I remember being like, maybe one day, right? And then a year ago, two years ago, all of a sudden, chicken Kievs, vegan chicken Kievs, started popping up in supermarkets all around the UK, and I couldn't believe it. So we've got a supermarket here called Marks and Spencers. They do a, a range called the Plant Kitchen range. And I think they were the first to bring out a garlic vegan chicken Kiev. And so I went to Marks and Spencers, and I looked at this box, and I was like, I can't believe it. I cannot believe that this has happened. You know, it's so small, it's so simple, it's so arbitrary, really. And then I cooked it and ate it and it was just like the chicken Kievs that I used to eat, but now vegan and no one died. Wonderful, right? Amazing. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. So it's a very small thing that, of course, but to me, it symbolizes something much larger, which is that the landscape when it came to veganism six years ago is very different to now. Now it's something that's so much easier, so much more accessible, so much more normalized, more accepted, more and more people are doing it, of course. So to see that and reflect on that is wonderful because it gives me hope for what the next six years will be like, the next 10 years, the next 15 years. It gives me real hope about what will change in the next period of time because I've seen so much of that change. And for those of you who have been vegan for two years or more, you've probably seen that change as well and been pleased by the change. Now, of course, it's never fast enough. It will never get us to where we want to be as quickly as we want to be. But I still think that there is a certain element of positivity on reflecting on the things that have changed so far. But anyway, 
less about me being vegan, more about before I was vegan. So vegan for six years, which means I went vegan when I was 20. Before then, I was not really a fan of veganism. Growing up, I was raised in a family where the idea of being a vegetarian was something that we laughed at. It was something we made jokes about. Growing up, I didn't know what a vegan was. I don't know if my family knew what veganism was. And so we didn't really make any comments about veganism because we didn't really know what it was. But you can be absolutely 100% sure that if we did know what vegans were and what veganism was, then we would have definitely made them the butt of the joke. But for us, vegetarianism was really the furthest extent of compassion towards animals. It was the furthest extent of abstaining from the exploitation of of non-human animals. So that was where we positioned our jokes right at, you know, those are the people that we thought should be laughed at. It's funny that, isn't it? And I guess what's really funny about it is around the family dinner table where we were making these jokes, we weren't making them to a vegetarian, we were just making them to ourselves. It was really weird, isn't it? Such strange logic. So obviously there were a couple of classic jokes. I don't even know if they're really jokes, to be honest with you. Uh, they're not funny. I don't really know what the punchline is to some of them. In the video, I, I cited one, which was that we would say, oh, you know, what's the best thing about having a vegetarian around for dinner? And then one of us would say, more meat for us. I don't really, <laughs> I don't think that's a joke. I just, it's such a strange thing to say, especially when we weren't saying it to anyone other than ourselves. There were other ones as well, just comments here and there. So growing up, really, being vegetarian was something that, if anything, I was rather hostile towards. No reason to be. I never met a vegetarian I didn't like. There was no reason for me to dislike the notion of being vegetarian. I guess I just didn't understand it. But importantly, I was raised in a family where I was told that it was something that was weird. This is why I think this part of my life is really important, because these comments, these jokes, the general attitude and bias against being vegetarian, when you're younger, when you're a child and when you become a teenager and young adult, the family that you're raised in and the attitudes of that family shape how you view the world and shape how you view other people and how you view other ideas and belief systems. So for me, being raised in an environment where vegetarianism was something to laugh at, it gave me the belief that it was something that was weird, something that was not aspirational, something that should be laughed at, something that should be scrutinized, something that someone should not do. And so an example of how this had an effect on my attitudes and behaviours really came from an English literature class that I was in. And in the class, we'd been studying a book. And so we were analysing the book and getting ready to write about the book. And so we were kind of discussing some of the ideas in the book. And anyway, one of the characters in the book was a vegetarian So my teacher just asked the classroom something along the lines of, you know, what do you think about being a vegetarian? So I put my hand up in the air. This is when I was around about 12, 13. So I put my hand up in the air and my teacher says, yes, Edward. And I said, all vegetarians are pale, weak and skinny. And I said it with complete (laughs) sincerity. I wasn't saying anything to you know, be funny, cause offence or anything. I just was saying what I thought the correct answer was. I thought my teacher had asked me a question like, what is five plus five? And I was answering 10. You know, I just thought this was the reality of being a vegetarian. You know, obviously if you're not eating meat, then 
in my head, that meant there was no iron, so you're going to be pale and weak, and there's no protein, so you're going to be skinny and weak, and ultimately, you're probably going to die because you've got no meat in your diet, and meat's essential to be healthy. That was the mindset that I had because, well, that's what I'd been told. And so I was expecting my teacher, the classroom, to kind of just agree with me, say correct answer, and we'd move on, and that obviously isn't what happened. The classroom was very quiet. My teacher looked at me. They were slightly dismayed, perhaps. They were maybe a little bit worried about what I'd said because there was a vegetarian girl in my classroom and I was friends with this girl. So I turned to look at her, maybe thinking I was going to get some validation. I mean, I didn't expect to cause any offense. And so when I turned to look at her, I was hoping that she would be like, yeah, I mean, that is that is correct. As a vegetarian, I feel pale, weak and skinny. But when I turned and looked at her, that's not the facial expression that I was given. It was more of one of disappointment, anger, disbelief. And so that was a strange moment for me. And ironically, you know, at that age, I was this lanky, skinny kid, right? And so the irony of me saying these things when I was hardly <laughs> the role model of a strong, muscular meat eater was obviously lost to me at that age. But on reflection, it's just like, wow, that's so, so ironic. But you don't realize at that age, of course. But that wasn't a really important moment and a very interesting moment for me to reflect on. And at the time, of course, it's very trivial, very arbitrary, doesn't really mean anything. I just said this thing, it was a bit silly, didn't make any sense, wasn't true. Obviously, everything was fine, everything moves on, the class continues. And so for me, when I went vegan and that memory kind of stood out to me, why I find it so interesting is because it really does summarize how growing up I was so influenced by my family, by society, by culture, by the adverts on television, by how meat is portrayed in, in media. You know, we like to think that we're just making these choices independently, that we have free will, that we're expressing our free will. But actually, that's not the case. You know, our belief systems, our behaviors, our attitudes, especially at that age, are given to us, dictated to us, and we're influenced by these external factors to the point where we believe that we're making conscious choices but we're not really. We're not actually critically reflecting on what we believe or what we do or what we say. We're merely regurgitating what we believe we're supposed to say, what we've been told is right, not necessarily what is objectively right. And so these conversations around the dinner table about being a vegetarian have taught me that I need to eat meat, that it's important to be healthy, that it's weird if you don't. And so when I'm confronted with a question about being a vegetarian, I just regurgitate what I've heard, what I've been told, what I've been led to believe. I haven't thought to myself, is this true? I've never researched it, of course, at that age. I wasn't really researching anything like that, of course. So it really emphasized to me and emphasizes still to me how we are products of our environment. And that's a really powerful thing for us to recognize, of course, because through that, we begin to understand that we need to reflect and we need to be critical and we need to analyze our behaviors, especially those behaviors that are so ingrained, we often overlook them. You know, those behaviors, those social attitudes that are just so normal, that are just so unconscious, those are the ones that often need the most scrutiny because those normalized behaviors without effective scrutiny and critical reflection can cause so much damage and be so harmful. And of course, our consumption of animal products is a great example of how unconscious behaviors and habits and attitudes can cause so much damage and so much suffering and so much death. Around this time as well, I was eating at the dinner table 
and we were eating beef casserole. Again, it's one of these moments that sticks out. I have a few food moments that stick out. This one I think is the most important because we were eating beef casserole, which was a meal that my family and I used to eat a lot. We liked it. And so I was taking a bite out of this chunk of beef and I just felt something in the chunk of beef that immediately just didn't feel right. And so I looked at the chunk of beef that I'd taken a bite out of and I saw a vein in there. And it was the first time I'd seen a vein in a piece of meat. And it made me feel so uncomfortable. My stomach just flipped and I lost my appetite. I just didn't want to eat anymore because it gave me the creeps. I could see the vein. I could imagine the blood flowing through the vein. And as a consequence of that, I put this piece of a cow back into the full picture of a cow. So it wasn't just a chunk of beef anymore. This was a piece of a cow. And I'd never thought about that before. But seeing that and recognizing that I was eating an animal who had veins like I do gave me the creeps. And it really affected me to the point where I never liked beef casserole again. I would always ask to never have it. If we were having it, I would really never enjoy it. It was something that just after that, I never wanted to consume again. I mean, what's really ironic, of course, is I blamed that experience on the meal itself, not on the bigger picture of what it was teaching me. I blamed the beef casserole. So that meal became the problem. How I That's how I compartmentalized that realization. Okay, well, I don't want to eat beef casserole anymore because when I do, it reminds me of this experience and this experience has shown me this or has made me feel this way. So I'm blaming the casserole rather than the lesson from the experience. So of course, I continue to eat steak and all other types of animal products, including products made from, from cow flesh. A couple of other experiences, I remember we had rabbit once and I thought that was really weird. It's so strange, isn't it? How you eat foods and the foods that you're used to eating, no problem. But sometimes you get these other foods and you're just like, oh, this is really weird. And when we had wild rabbit, that was one of those experiences I remember there was a conversation about how the rabbit had been shot, how they'd been skinned, how they'd been butchered, and now we had these dead rabbits. And I just was so not happy with that at all. I just didn't like that. That's really interesting to me because, of course, I ate all the other types of animals. But rabbit, because it's not an animal that I conventionally consumed, it was just this one or two times I'd ever consumed rabbit, that just, it didn't sit right with me. I remember having a conversation with someone and they were talking about how they'd go around to their friends for dinner and one of the meats in, in the meal they were eating was cow heart and I thought that was absolutely horrendous. I would never eat liver or kidney. I thought it was the worst thing in the world. I didn't like the taste, but I thought eating organs, that's disgusting. So it's funny how you have these yes meats and no meats, if you know what I mean. You have the, the animals and the animal products and the cuts of animals that you're absolutely fine of eating, but then there's all these others that repulse you and disgust you and you'd never touch. I never liked chicken drumsticks. But when I was a young kid, as I got older, I became less bothered by wings and drumsticks, so legs and wings. But when I was young, I hated eating chicken drumsticks because of the bone and all like the tendons and like the bits of the body of the chicken that you're eating. I hated that. I thought it was horrible. Anything with gristle repulsed me. So anything that reminded me that what I was eating was an animal immediately just threw me off guard and I didn't like that at all. And the beef casserole moment was one of the earliest memories I have of that and was one of the most significant moments because the way it 
influenced me and changed my behavior. And the fact that I blamed it on the casserole to me is really interesting. So as I began to grow up, I became less bothered about some of these things. As you could probably imagine, I was a huge fan of McDonald's. I had this voucher, I don't know, it was like a bus voucher in the UK when you got a bus ticket. So every time I went to school, and this is really messed up when you think about it. So every time I go to school, I would obviously get the bus. And so I'd get a bus ticket. Now the bus ticket was printed on a voucher for McDonald's. So twice a day, I was getting a voucher for McDonald's just by riding the bus to school. I mean, if that isn't just, that is such a statement on things, isn't it? That bus routes where children, teenagers are getting buses to school Every day they're getting two vouchers for McDonald's, incentivizing them to go. And I did. It was £1.99, which was cheap for a Big Mac and medium fries. And so I just went to town. Every time I was in the city centre, I'd go to McDonald's without fail. One ninety nine, Big Mac and medium fries. And I had more vouchers than I knew how to use because I only went to town every so often, but I get two a day. So McDonald's was a big part of my life. And so I never really questioned much around that. But I remember a little bit later, I'd gone to university, met my girlfriend who I'm still with. We've been through this whole journey since then together. So all the changes we did together, she influenced me more than I did her, that's for sure. But when I went to uni, I met my girlfriend and we started watching shark and whale movies. I always loved shark movies and so did she. (laughs) And so we had watched movies like Jaws, Deep Blue Sea, all like the classic shark horror movies, like all the good ones, right? And all the bad ones as well. There's plenty of bad ones. Still fun ones though, but bad. And I came across this really old film from like 1977 or something. And it was like a ripoff of Jaws, but it was about a killer whale. And it was, the film's called Orca, a killer whale. (laughs) And the premise of the film is that this killer whale, her baby has been killed by whalers, I think. And so now she goes out on a revenge mission to kill the people who killed her baby. Fantastic premise, of course. And as soon as I read the summary, I was hooked. So I managed to get a copy. We watched it. It's a NAF film, but anything to do with whales and sharks and underwater and you know these animals hunting humans was just a, a winner for us. So we watched the film. And then not long after we saw this documentary was being screened at the BFI, which is the British Film Institute in the UK. It's like a a really great place, but they screen a lot of of films, lots of new films, a lot of classic films. So we used to go there often. So we saw that they were advertising this new documentary called Blackfish. We watched the trailer. The trailer is obviously quite suspenseful. It's talking about this killer whale called Tillicum, who's killed humans in SeaWorld. And we were like, this sounds great. Let's go. Now, when I was much younger, when I was nine years old, I'd gone to Vancouver with my family to Canada. And in Vancouver Park or Stanley Park, there is Vancouver Aquarium. And so we'd gone to the aquarium. And just before we had visited, so just before 2003, Vancouver Aquarium had just got rid of their last killer whale. I think that they'd been rehomed somewhere else, I believe. I don't think they died, but potentially they had done. Anyway, there were no longer any killer whales in Vancouver Aquarium. And I remember very vividly walking towards the aquarium with my parents. And my mum tells me that there's no longer any killer whales there. And I'm disappointed by that. I'm gutted, you know, being nine years old, I wanted to see a whale. And so I thought an aquarium was a great place to see a whale. I've been to aquariums before and seen sharks and such. I believe I'd seen dolphins, but I'd never seen a whale, especially not an orca. 
So I was really disappointed about that. In the aquarium, there were still beluga whales, there were still dolphins, there were still lots of other prisoners there. And so I was still able to see plenty of animal exploitation, but I wasn't able to see the killer whale being exploited, which I wanted to. And so it's interesting that, again, I remember that. But going to see this documentary, Blackfish, I didn't think twice about SeaWorld. Aquariums hadn't really bothered me. And going to zoos was my favorite things to do. So I never really thought twice about SeaWorld, but we go and see this film thinking it'll be probably enjoyable, maybe a little bit scary because there's this whale that's killing humans. That sounds, you know, right up our street. But the documentary wasn't what we expected it to be. We came out of the documentary and we were shocked, to be honest, absolutely horrified. I mean, of course, at that time, many people simply weren't aware. And actually Blackfish did so much to raise awareness and really tarnish SeaWorld and really ruined their public image for so many reasons, which has been really good to see, of course, because when you see the documentary and then you realize the absurdity of what we're doing to these animals. I mean, I think that was one of the things that shocked me is after the documentary had finished, I was like, of course, this is absolutely insane. And the fact that I needed a documentary to show me that imprisoning intelligent you know, huge, majestic animals in tiny swimming pools so that they would perform tricks for us. The fact that I needed a a documentary to tell me that was wrong was frightening, actually. And another important lesson in my life to to say, actually, look, here's something that you never questioned. But when you all of a sudden were given a little bit of room to reflect and look at it objectively, you realize just how ridiculous and crazy it was. And what we do to animals in in aquariums is such a great first step to making that realization to go, these animals who swim for miles and miles and miles, who live in pods, who form deep relationships within those pods, you know, have strong connections with their children, with, you know, with the other animals. And they're in these swimming pools, tiny areas, and they have to perform tricks for us. Of course, that's absolutely outrageous. And then another important thing is the rhetoric that's used by SeaWorld, how the trainers talk about welfare, how they talk about caring about these animals. I know how they're given these great lives and they're really, you know, well looked after. Okay, so this is the rhetoric that's used by people who exploit animals. That was a big thing for me as well to hear that because I thought that's outrageous. You've kidnapped these animals from their homes in the oceans, or at least that's how it started. You now have these breeding programs within these facilities, and you now have these incredibly intelligent animals locked away in pools where you force them to jump through hoops and do tricks to loud music to perform to people for money. And then you say that you care about them and that you actually want to look after their well-being and welfare and that's your priority. Yeah, that doesn't sound right to me. And so all of a sudden I was questioning so much and I was questioning not just what I've taken for granted, but also the reason why I took it for granted. And the fact that we're given these little sound bites and this rhetoric is used by these industries to make us feel better about perpetuating and participating in these acts of violence and exploitation. That was a really important realization for me. Anyway, so we come out of this documentary, yeah, mind's blown about it, and we decide we want to do something about it. And so we find out there's a protest happening in London, and it's a protest about captivity of cetaceans, so whales and dolphins, in aquariums and and marine parks. 
And so we go along and we're given a bunch of flyers to hand out and have conversations with people and, you know, do some outreach and advocacy and talk about the documentary, talk about the issue and, you know, encourage people to not visit places like SeaWorld and marine parks and aquariums when, you know, they go on holiday and such and not participate in these industries. And yeah, it was a really liberating experience. It was the first time we'd done anything like that. And we were like, wow, we've gone out and done something and stood up for something that we believe in. You know, that's not something that most people do and especially we'd not done it so it was a wonderful experience for that reason it gave us confidence but then we went to Wagamama afterwards which is like a restaurant chain here in, in the UK and we had squid and chicken and ate animal products but we didn't realize the irony in what we were doing how we were standing up for animals and their rights saying it's wrong to exploit these animals it's wrong to treat these animals as commodities we should grant these animals more respect give them their autonomy and then we go to a restaurant and buy you know, animals who've been slaughtered. But you don't necessarily realize that, do you? You know, we're all very passionate about animals, right? We, everyone in society is against animal cruelty. Everyone believes that animals should be treated well. That's what we say, at least. But in practice, our actions contradict those very notions, but we don't often realize that. Or if we do, we do a good job of ignoring that or finding justifications to excuse that. Around that time, we'd gone to Barcelona. This was afterwards. And... In Barcelona, there's the zoo there. And so we decided to go to the zoo because we'd historically loved going to zoos. We'd gone to London Zoo. We'd gone to Amsterdam Zoo when we were in Amsterdam. And before I'd met my girlfriend, you know, I'd gone to zoos with my family and always really enjoyed it. So we're in Barcelona. I'm like, one thing we should do is go to the zoo because we'll have a great time at the zoo. So we go to the zoo and two things happened in the zoo. The first thing that happened was they had a small little aquarium thing there. And it wasn't like a big aquarium, but it was basically a, a kind of an amphitheater thing with this kind of water in the middle. And so at intervals during the day, they had sea lions and it was sea lion feeding. When we'd gone to the zoo in Amsterdam the year previous, we had stood by the sea lion enclosure and had watched these sea lions for ages, probably like an hour. And we just thought they were the most wonderful animals. They were just so clumsy and so goofy and so noisy. <laughs> the way that they moved, everything we just thought was amazing about them. Of course, they were trapped in these little enclosures and we didn't think about that at the time, but we were really, really in awe of these animals, even though, of course, they were being exploited by us. So when we went to this Barcelona zoo, we thought, wow, okay, there's these sea lions who have been fed. We should definitely go and see that. That would be brilliant. So we go and we sit in this amphitheater and the show starts. And so the trainers come out with their buckets of fish and out come the sea lions. And they start making the sea lions do things like, you know, make noises or stand up and clap and just do these things. And as soon as it started, I was like, this is wrong. You know, this is just wrong. They've been made to perform so they could be fed. You know, obviously these animals are hungry. They want to be fed. And the way they get fed is they have to perform tricks for me. So they have to entertain me to, to be fed. I thought that is twisted. So I looked at my girlfriend. She was thinking the same as me, I could tell. And we were like, let's leave. So we walked out. And then we're wandering around the zoo a little bit more. And we're kind of chatting about it saying, yeah, I, okay, I don't like any of this aquarium stuff. All these, you know, these sea marine animals who have been, you know, used for tricks and stuff. Yeah, that's not good. Let's not do that again. Let's just wander around the rest of the zoo and see all the other animals in, in their enclosures and, and that'll be fine. And then we come across this bear enclosure. And in the enclosure, there was just one bear, a brown bear, I think. And they're just sat on their bottom, you know, how bears do. And they just sat there. 
and they just looked so depressed. They looked so sad. And I was just looking at this bear and I just felt so guilty because they just looked so, so sad. And it's funny how you see the emotion based on your feeling at that time. And so what I mean by that is I'd been to so many zoos before and I'd probably seen countless animals who were sat around, who were pacing up and down, who looked sad, who were very clearly showing that they were sad and, and depressed uh, and suffering. And I would have just ignored that. I'd have gone, oh, look, here's this animal. This is great. I love bears. I love lions. I love tigers. It's amazing. And you don't recognize that. You see what you want to see, right? But in this moment, I was seeing this bear and because of what just happened with the sea lions, I was already feeling like this is wrong. And then I see this bear who's just sat there looking so bored and so depressed, who just isn't moving, isn't doing anything, has nothing to do. And I was just like, this is not right. So we left and that was the last time we were ever in a zoo. We went to get food afterwards. <laughs> I had chicken again. Because again, I'd still not made that realization. But that was the last time I ever went to a zoo. And last time we ever went to a zoo. And reflecting on that, another really important moment. Anyway, shortly after this, the moment that made me go vegetarian happened. Now I had vegetarian friends and being a vegetarian at university was quite normal for many people. And so by that point, I kind of got over my idea of vegetarian being weird. I was with people who were perfectly healthy, who were absolutely fine. And they were vegetarian and had been for years. Some of them, I think since they were kids. So it was absolutely normal. That idea had been shattered for me by this point but I didn't want to be vegetarian. And I remember I had a friend around, we were ordering pizza and he didn't want to have bacon on the pizza. And I was annoyed by this because I liked bacon on my pizza. I would always buy pizza with chicken and bacon. That was just the pizza that I wanted. If it wasn't a chicken and bacon pizza, and I wasn't interested, that's not pizza to me, right? <laughs> that's the mindset that I had. And I made that very clear pigs give us bacon. That's the point of a pig, right? You know, what's the point of these animals? We breed them and they give us the meat, the dairy and the eggs. That's what we want. That's the purpose of these animals. That's why they're here. Why wouldn't we just eat them? It was such an, a strange concept to me, the, the idea that we wouldn't do that. Like, why wouldn't we do that? And so in May 2014, I come across this story in the news about a chicken truck crashing on the motorway near the city of Manchester in England as it was going to a slaughterhouse. Now, this was a truck full of X egg layers. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know anything about the egg industry, which is kind of funny because this story is why I went vegetarian. But actually, these animals have been exploited all their lives in the egg industry. And yes, they were going to be killed for their flesh. But the reason that they had been exploited and were bred in the first place was for eggs. And I didn't know that, of course. I read this story about a chicken truck crash on the way to a slaughterhouse. And so I thought, wow, this is chickens being raised for their flesh. Of course, they were going to be killed for their flesh anyway. So the point still remains, but I overlooked such a huge part of the problem at that time. Anyway, the articles describing how hundreds of the birds have been killed in total, 1,500 were killed in the impact alone. There was about six and a half thousand chickens on the truck. And that's standard for these trucks carrying chickens to slaughterhouses, they can have more than six and a half thousand. So six and a half thousand chickens, 1500 have died from the impact. There are others with broken bones, broken wings, they're suffering, they're mutilated, they're dying on the side of the road, they're in pain. And I felt bad for them. I'd never felt bad for a chicken in my life. I'd never thought about a chicken. A chicken was something I ate. Chicken wasn't a living, breathing, sentient 
being. No, that never crossed my mind, not properly. And yet I was feeling sorry for these animals. And what was really important was it wasn't just a story about animal suffering. It was a story about animal suffering who were going to be killed for meat. And so I couldn't detach from that. I couldn't go, oh, it's really sad this chicken's been killed in this random incident that's taken place. I had to go, it's really sad that these chickens are suffering in an environment that exists because they were going to be killed for meat. The only reason they're suffering now is because of where they were going and because they'd been put in the truck in the first place. And the reason for that is because people eat meat and I eat meat. So I recognized these animals felt pain, which is something I'd never really thought about before. And I felt sorry for them. And obviously that said a lot to me, but in my fridge was a KFC because at that point, fried chicken was my favorite food. I used to eat fried chicken once, twice a week. It was such an important <laughs> part of my identity in a way. It was McDonald's when I was a teenager and it was KFC when I got to university. So when I was a, a late teenager, it was fried chicken twice a week. I had a local KFC near where I went. I went all the time. And so I was feeling sorry for these birds. Yeah. I ate fried chicken once, twice a week, and outside of eating fried chicken was probably just eating chicken flesh another couple of times a week, of chicken pasta and, and, and whatnot. So I was eating chicken's bodies multiple times a week, probably more than half the week. And yet I'm feeling sorry for these chickens. How does that line up? Morally, it didn't make sense to me because I was like, I'm paying for these animals to suffer and be killed. And the only reason I know about this particular moment is because the truck has crashed. And yet every day those trucks make it to the slaughterhouse without incident. And so they're not reported on. So every single day, trucks filled with six and a half thousand chickens end up at their destination, but those chickens are still killed. Now at the time I didn't realize, but there was a sanctuary very close by a rescue called Dogs for Rescue. And they heard the crash because it was right near where they live. And so they went out and they rehomed thousands of hens. They rehomed so many hens. They were just collecting them and, and bringing them into near where they lived into the fields and, and rescuing them. And then they put a call out telling people, we have these hens, they need homes. And people were coming and getting the chickens and taking them home and, and hopefully not exploiting them, of course. But they did such an amazing job and they went vegan as a consequence of that, which is really amazing. And I actually visited their sanctuary, Dogs for Rescue, when I was doing a land of hope and glory to us when I was touring UK universities and we'd been to a couple in the Manchester area and, and they heard about the reason that I changed to vegetarian and how this incident had influenced me. And, and so we went to theirs and I have a video on my YouTube channel actually of that experience. And they're showing me pictures of the moment when it happened, you know, the incident itself and how the hens, they were in such a horrible way, but not just in a horrible way because of the crash, but because of the egg industry as well, you know, about their feathers you know, really in a terrible way, just generally. Anyway, so I read this story and I realize I have to do something because I'm faced with two options, right? I can ignore my morals and my values, or I can recognize that I have a responsibility to act on my values. And so if I say I'm against animal cruelty and I'm feeling sorry for these chickens, well, what am I going to do about that? Right? Because I can bury my head in the sand, sure, and pretend everything's fine, but I know it's not fine. I've realized that now. So what am I going to do about it? And so I went vegetarian at that point. I didn't know anything about dairy and eggs. I didn't care to know anything about dairy or eggs. I loved cheese and actually going vegetarian. This is what happens when people go vegetarian, of course. 
you're not replacing the meat necessarily with plant-based foods. You're replacing the meat with eggs and, and dairy. And that's what I did. I ate lots more eggs and I started eating loads of halloumi, everyday halloumi. And I thought halloumi was the most amazing thing that I'd ever discovered. I'd had halloumi before, but I really, really discovered it when I went vegetarian. And so me and my girlfriend gone vegetarian together and started eating loads of cheese and, and lots more eggs. So in terms of animal suffering, if anything, we, we actually caused more when we went vegetarian. But anyway, that's besides the point. I thought vegans were militant. I thought vegans were extreme and I didn't want to be vegan. I really didn't want to be vegan. I really, really, really didn't want to be vegan. I thought vegans were these people that didn't have a sense of humor. I'd never met a vegan or I think I'd met one vegan and he was absolutely fine. <laughs> he didn't say anything to me about being vegan and he definitely didn't give me a bad impression of vegans. But in my head, I was like, vegans are this, vegans are that, vegans is something you don't want to be. Basically, because that's what I've been told, right? That's what the media was telling me. That's what I'd been raised to believe. That's how I'd been influenced. And personally, outside of those external factors, I didn't want to be vegan. So I wanted to think of every reason possible to not be vegan. So, you know, oh, I only buy free range eggs. You know, I only buy cheese from British farms where the animals are well looked after. And, you know, anyway, animals don't die for dairy and eggs. So what even is the problem? These vegans are so militant, like, lighten up, okay? I'm a vegetarian. What's the problem? That was my attitude. After being vegetarian for around eight months or so, my girlfriend sees this post shared on Instagram. Someone she's following shared that we should watch Earthlings, that people should watch Earthlings. She saw this post and she was like, you know, we should watch this documentary. This person who I follow has recommended it. It sounds interesting. Let's watch it. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> there is no way I'm watching this documentary. I don't want anything to do with this documentary. This is propaganda piece right? This is just bad farms, extreme situations, and it doesn't reflect the industry on a whole. And these farmers are out here caring for their animals and looking after their animals, and they really love their animals. And we're just going to cherry pick these bad farmers and these bad slaughterhouses and say, look how bad the industry is. I really didn't want to watch it. I think because I knew it would mean I had to change. My girlfriend was saying about going vegan. <laughs> and I was just like groaning, like, oh no, please don't do this. <laughs> please don't do this. But she got it in her head, this is something that she wanted to do, that she needed to do. And this was before she'd watched the documentary. You know, she'd already decided really that she knew this was something that was important. I'd not quite caught up yet. So we put off watching the documentary or I put off watching the documentary. And then sometime later, my girlfriend decides, well, I want to watch this documentary, so I'm just going to watch it. So she gets the laptop out, she starts watching it and she knows that I'm going to watch it. She knew that already. So through her doing that, I watched the documentary. And obviously, for those of you who have seen it, you know what it's about. It's horrendous. It's 90 minutes, an hour 40 of just undercover footage taken from farms and slaughterhouses and different facilities of animal exploitation. And it just shows the reality. It's not one bad farm or one bad practice. It's just what happens. It's the, it's the practices, the standard legal practices and the treatment of these animals. And more to the point, the narration, which is done by Joaquin Phoenix, the visuals are showing these practices and these behaviors, but the narration tells the story of the philosophy. It teaches you about speciesism. It teaches you about the attitude that we have to animals. So it's not just, oh, look, this tail docking's bad. It shows you what happens to animals every day, but it teaches you why it's not just about what you're seeing. It's about the mindset. So after the documentary had finished, I went to spend time with Rupert the hamster. Now, Rupert the hamster was the first animal I ever really had in my life. I had, I think, some fish when I was really young. And I remember we had a black goldfish called Batman. But 
I never really spent any time with animals growing up. We didn't have uh, companion animals in my home. So Rupert was the first companion animal that I ever had. And he was great. And I loved him very dearly. And so after the documentary finished, I thought I'd spend some time with him. I thought I'll spend some time with an animal that would be lovely. That would make me feel better because right now I'm crying and that's not what I want to be doing. So I decided to give Rupert his favorite food, which is broccoli. Rupert loved broccoli. He loved lots of different fruits and vegetables. Rupert lived a very long life for a hamster, actually. And I think it's because we fed him so many fruits and vegetables, which is, of course, the key to a long life for us as well. And anyway, he's eating some broccoli and I'm watching him eat this broccoli and I realized something about Rupert, something so obvious, that he has a personality. He has likes and dislikes, things that make him Rupert the hamster, things that make him unique, things that make his life valuable to him and things that I enjoy about him, you know, the things that make me care about him, the sentience, the individuality, the consciousness, those behaviors, those personalities. And I thought about Rupert and I thought about how... Rupert the hamster is a very small animal who represents one individual amongst all of the animals that exist. And I recognize so much within this one individual. I recognize so much in just this one little creature here in my hand who's eating the broccoli. What about all the other animals? The animals I've just watched, the animals that I know have been exploited not just in the US, in the UK, everywhere. What about them? Because if I recognize so much within Rupert, how can I deny that what I recognize within Rupert, how can I deny that that exists in pigs and cows and chickens and and ducks and lambs and even marine animals who are intelligent and sentient as well? How can I deny what these animals go through when if anyone ever tried to hurt Rupert, I would oppose that and I would defend him, and it would make me deeply upset if anyone ever did hurt him. I'd seen Rupert in pain. I'd seen him hurting, and it made me feel terrible. I didn't like an animal suffering, and yet I was paying for animals to suffer. And it's not just about meat, of course. I realized that my view about how we should live with animals, my values about animals, far transcended just meat is wrong. If our transcended just meat, dairy, and eggs being wrong, if our transcended just the fact that what we do to animals is wrong, and actually became an awareness that it's not about necessarily the things we do to them, but the mindset that facilitates and perpetuates what we do to them. How have we got to a point where the things that we do to animals, the mutilations, the forced impregnations, the skinning, the slaughter, the incarceration in, in aquariums, how is it that we've got to the point where all of these things are acceptable? they're normalized and they're defended. How have we got to a point where forcibly impregnating an animal, taking their baby away from them, and then drinking their milk, which was meant for their baby and their species, how have we got to the point where we go, this is something that's great, and this is something that should be defended, and if someone drinks oat milk rather than cow's milk, they're an extremist. How is that the default position that we've created where, oh, you eat a product made of vegetables. Oh, you're an extremist. I eat a product made from an animal who was selectively bred, forcibly impregnated, (laughs) who was taken from their mother and who was raised and who has been slaughtered and was a sentient conscious being who had their life taken from them. Oh, I ate them. How is that the default? How is it extreme to not want to hurt animals? And not only that, because 
If you ask anyone, is animal cruelty wrong? Like I've already mentioned this podcast, everyone says, of course it's wrong. So how have we got to a point where everyone says that something is wrong? And yet for the most part, we support industries that cause cruel things to happen to animals. Taking someone's life needlessly and without consent is, is cruel. Of course it is. And so all the things that we do to animals are cruel, but even outside of that, just the mere fact that we exploit them, deny their autonomy and then kill them is an act of cruelty. And yet most of us pay for these things to happen, but then without irony, we'll take a bite out of a chicken sandwich or a burger made from a cow. Take a bite and as you're eating, say, oh, you know, I'm against animal cruelty. That was something that I couldn't understand. And so ultimately that's why I went vegan, because I realized that these issues are far bigger than just meat, dairy and eggs, bigger than just leather and wool and, and the things that happen to animals in these environments. Of course, it transcends that and becomes an issue of how do we view our relationship with non-human animals and what right do they deserve? And, and by right, I mean the right to freedom of not being exploited, the right to the freedom of having ownership of their body, the right to not having to be farmed, not being mutilated, not being exploited, not being killed for profit. The most basic rights that you could bestow on someone, the most obvious rights that you could bestow on someone. Just the right to their own body and to their own autonomy and to not be used for us needlessly. So yeah, then that was what made me go vegan in the end. And that's kind of it really. There'll be other things that happened along the way. Of course, little moments, little interactions that I had, little things that were said to me, little experiences, maybe something I saw in a documentary or maybe on the TV. Of course, there are these moments that happen and, and ultimately will build up to that you know, realization that I had with Rupert the Hamster after watching the documentary Earthlings. But that was the moment, of course, where things started to click into place. But ultimately, before then, there was this long stream of events that each time brought me slightly closer. And it's so interesting how that happens, isn't it? And I think that's really, for me, I found that a very enjoyable thing to kind of reflect on and work out. It's something that, you know, I like thinking, oh, you know, what did that mean at that time? What did that represent? What did that symbolize? What did that teach me? I'm sure that for most of you guys listening, you probably can think of moments as well. And maybe you've never thought about them before, but maybe you think, oh, actually, I remember, you know, five years ago, this did happen or 10 years ago, they did have this conversation or I did see this or I did think that or, you know, this did happen to me. And we're constantly being shaped by these these moments. And I think that's a really exciting thing. Um, and I think it's it's really wonderful. So, yeah, that's kind of my journey to veganism and some of the things that happened along the way. And I guess the lessons that they taught me and how that slowly started to degrade my trust in the animal exploitation industries to the point where... I decided to become vegan and then of course later became an advocate and started speaking out and, you know, started making videos and ultimately podcasts as well, of course, as you guys are aware by the virtue of listening to this one. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed listening. That brings us to the end of the podcast. So thank you so much for listening to it. I really hope you've enjoyed it. I'd be really interested to know if you guys ever have those experiences as well. And I'd be interested, you know, maybe to hear them one day if, if we ever meet, maybe let me know about some of those experiences that you've had and the reflections that, that you had on your journey as well. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day, a great rest of your week. And I look forward to speaking to you all in the next podcast. But until then, of course, stay safe. Please look after yourselves. And yeah, I hope you have a, a great time until we next speak with each other. All right, guys, thanks again. And we'll speak very soon. <laughs>